Welcome to the Deep Change Podcast, where we explore the future of human potential through psychology, brain tech, and pushing the boundaries of neuroplasticity. I'm your host, James Garrett, and today we have the honor of having Dave Rabin on the show. Dave is an MD, PhD in neuroscience and psychiatry, and is the chief innovation officer, co-inventor, and co-founder of Apollo Neuroscience. As a psychiatrist and translational neuroscientist, Dr. Rabin specializes in developing novel and non-invasive therapies for treatment-resistant physical and mental illness. His research focuses on chronic stress from the cellular and molecular level to the body as a whole. Dr. Rabin works to identify new healthcare markets to evaluate Apollo's real-world efficacy through clinical trials and to guide development of the Apollo technology. This is a guy who has the heart, brains, and passion to make all of our lives a little better by reducing our stress and increasing our focus. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, James. I really appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm so excited for this. This is, uh, you know, we met uh, through a mutual friend. Was it, was it Haleli? Am I remembering right? It was. Azula, yeah. yeah. So I was on Hillary's podcast and she connected Dave and I um, last year. And uh, I've just been fascinated by what Dave and his team are building at Apollo Neuroscience. Um, and I think maybe the place to start um, is about the topic of stress. You know, why, why do you guys, uh, you know, how do you see the problem that you're tackling? I think I understand it as stress, but you guys may understand it differently. But why are you tackling the problem? How, how do you define the problem you're tackling? And why are you, are you sort of tackling that particular problem? That's a great question. Uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of, of vagueness around the word stress uh, because it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. The best way to really characterize stress is to go back to the autonomic nervous system, mm. which is a part of the nervous system we really don't think about very much, uh, but it's critical to the management of everything that goes on in our bodies in the background from your heart rate to your breathing rate to your blood pressure to the, to the uh, stiffness of your blood vessels to your immune system, your digestion, everything that sort of runs in the background of your body that you don't have to, you don't have to attend to all the time mm. is controlled by this nervous system. And so that, and the nervous system, this particular part of the nervous system is really critical because in that part of the nervous system, it's a dynamic balance between stress and safety. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and, and by stress, I mean, fear, uh, real fear, um, threat of, 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 uh, threat of uh, physical injury or mental, emotional injury or death, those kinds of things, which we call, you know, colloquially fight or flight responses. And so, the sympathetic system, the, the stress response part of that system, is responsible for all of the fight or flight responses and it's supposed to be activated uh, in large part when we're in situations like running from a bear or from an immediate threat to our survival. But the mm -hmm. problem is, and, and, and the system works very well when it's activated specifically for those things in the moment, um, because in those moments, you don't want to be thinking about your digestion or your reproduction or your creativity or your sleep. You need to get out of that situation as quickly as possible. Right. And so what happens is you enter this acutely, acutely sympathetic, high fight or flight, high stress.
uh, stress state. And then in that state, all of the stuff that your body does when you're not stressed out that's controlled by the parasympathetic side of the nervous system, which is the rest, digestion, creativity, reproduction, all immunity, all the things, gets suppressed. And so the regulation of all those activities is, is reduced. And the focus is get out of this stressful situation, fight, flight, freeze, whatever you need to do. The problem is when those stress responses are perpetuated over time. So stress times time is really where the issue starts to set in. All of the health issues start to set in is because you end up having this, what we call like a tonic or persistent increase in activity in the sympathetic nervous system, which causes a tonic or perpetual decrease in parasympathetic activity. And so all of the systems in your body start to dysfunction that are related to safety or that require safety to work. So, you know, part, so when you're really, so when you're chronically stressed, it's hard to be creative. It's hard to be focused. It's hard to uh, get good sleep and wind down quickly before bed and to, you know, reliably adjust your schedule and your appetite and adjust to changing situations in the environment. And so by adjusting activity in that nervous system, we can influence directly how we respond to all these things and how our body is working or how well our body's working. So a lot of the techniques that we teach people in our clinic um, and in general uh, and that we practice ourselves are to um, balance activity in the the, the autonomic nervous system between sympathetic and parasympathetic so that we are achieving our maximal recovery states when we're not threatened and we can Mm -hmm. quickly transition back to a feeling of safety and recovery when the threat is gone. But when the threat's present, you quickly adjust to it. You would you do what you need to do and you adapt to the situation and move on. Um, but the, but the stress thoughts and the things associated with the situation end as soon as the stress, the threat is gone. And so that's really what is the, is what we call resilience, which is this, you know, ideal balance state between parasympathetic and sympathetic that facilitates a, a more, um, uh, healthy in generally healthy life mentally, physically, and emotionally. Right. Right, and and the and the main idea in terms of kind of understanding the the balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic is that the, am I right in understanding that that when one is on, the other is off, or how do you so, yes, how does that, that work? That, the, yes, that, yeah, I think I think that's a generally good way to understand it. Yeah. Um, I, but it's not the complete story. So, sure. so the in in general, when you are in that situ, those situations where you're running from a bear and you are in a desperate fight or flight survival situation, what happens is that your parasympathetic system shuts down to a large extent. It doesn't ever or almost never completely shuts down. Mm-hmm. None of these systems almost ever completely shut down because they're required for survival and thriving in your life. So they're they're always kind of active. But it's just that the, the proportionate amount of activity is changed. Um, mm. Interestingly enough, over the last 20 or 30 years, there's been a lot of research looking into states of high sympathetic and parasympathetic activity, which have a lot of different names. These states are often called flow states or uh, peak performance states or peak experience states where people experience and or describe experiencing things like maximal presentness, focus, attention, and maximal emotion control, but also excitement and arousal and energy and mm. productivity and and it's something that we have all probably experienced in some ways in our day-to-day lives when we're doing things we really like to do when we're really focused and present in the moment with those things however um 
achieving those states can be difficult, particularly when we're doing things that we don't like to do. <laughs> and so, um, and, and that's something we're also, many of us are very familiar with. So the trick um, it, of balancing your nervous system is to help you adapt to those kinds of stressors where you're, you're, you're facing something that you don't want to do or something that you, that you shouldn't feel like you have to do. And that causes an inordinate amount of stressful thoughts in your brain and and you can have those thoughts or you can well you know for lack of a better term sort of flow flow with them or pass them mm. uh to the actual solution um and so by practicing these nervous system balance like balancing activities like meditation mindfulness and deep breathing and yoga and massage and biofeedback etc all of these different techniques are different ways to sort of help increase the resilience of the body over time that allows a smoother transition between these states that allows us to move through those states more fluidly or flexibly. Is that right. how, you're, how you're thinking of that? Yeah. Got yeah. It. So, the, so, the, so the, the, speed, the speed and the fluidity with which you transition is accentuated. Effectively, your, your ability to, to react to the, to the threat is immediate and strong, and you get out of, you're more likely to get out of that situation and, and, and find safety. And then when you find safety, you're more likely to calm down quickly and adjust to that environment. So you're not constantly thinking about your trauma for days, months, years when, later. When you've built up stress resilience, is that the idea? That there, there's sort of like, a, um, I'm almost thinking of it as the opposite of um, kind of stress buildup or what I hear psych, you know, scientists call allostatic right. Load, load, right? Uh, right. I almost think of it as the, like the opposite. And, and Rick Hansen at UC Berkeley talks a lot about this, um, where it's sort of like you're building up Barbara Fredrickson. There's a whole b bunch of people sort of diving into this kind of space of building these kind of stress or sort of resilience reservoirs. Yeah. Um, and is that, is, is that sort of how you think of it as well? Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, there are, there's a certain amount of reserve effectively that you can build up, you know, when we really think about approaching situations, you know, if you think about something that a situation that makes you stressed out, what do you bring to the table and what is coming and what is coming to the table or already at the table when you get there. Right. Mm -hmm. So the things that you have control over are what you bring to the table. The right. things that you don't necessarily have control over are what's already on the table when you get there. And so ultimately, the more prepared you are and the, in terms of the things that you can control when you come in, and that goes for your you know, resiliency reserves or however you want to describe it, um, the more prepared you are, the better you're going to re uh, respond to that stressful, stressful experience, whatever that may be, because you're going to be more clear-headed and thoughtful rather than panicking. And we know that panicking never really solves anything. Um, yeah. so I think that the, yeah, I mean, we can do it and we do it a lot, but it's not necessarily yeah. something that's constructive or productive to get us out of a situation or help us make good decisions. So, so the, um, specifically not making good, good decisions. It's, it's very helpful to get, get us like, on, like running, but, but it's a physical, right. that's a physical response, not a cognitive response, right? And decision-making is very much right. cognitive activity. Right. And so the, deci the, the decision making more than just fighting or flight or flying out of a situation, the yeah. decision making about how do you respond to your boss when they look at you funny in a meeting is different. Right. Mm. There, there needs to be a much more conscious effort in terms of your the way that you um, the way that you 
interact with with those experiences so that you don't cause an undesired outcome. And so, because those are not simple running from a bear situations, right? Those are those are much more intricate uh, mm-hmm. situations that require more finesse. And we, most of us who who work in those environments that require those kinds of skills, we've been trained to do them, and we are good at them when we're in the moment. But when we're in our heads thinking about how people are judging us or us judging our, ourselves, it automatically impairs our ability to be present and focused and perform at our best. Right. And so that's really what these, all of these practices of mindfulness and meditation and, and all the things that you've been talking about on your show um, to enhance your brain health are really in large part about enhancing this, this constant balance between the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems to build up your reserves. So that when you go into these situations, you're more prepared, you know, and I, and I think one of the things that always fascinated me about this kind of question that you just asked, which is, and sort of led me down this, down this field was, why do some people get sick? And why do some people mm-hmm. not, even though some people who don't get sick end up having much more stress in their lives than others. And that's right. the same for physical and mental illness, right? Why do some people who are extremely traumatized in their youth overcome it and become fantastic superstars in society and, and their lives in general, and why do other people wind up in and out of mental institutions not able to cope? And, and so those are the questions that start to lead us to think, well, maybe there's something else going on here. Fascinating. Um, the way you've described that, Dave, with um, sort of, uh, you know, I, I sort of think of it as making uh, deposits into my emotional bank account or my brain bank account or, or, or sort of investing. You know, I, I, you know yeah. m- most of the way we're running our day isn't thinking of our body and our brain as like a biological system that needs inputs, namely uh, restorative or recharging inputs, right? Uh, right. We all are, you know, m- a good portion of us are underslept. Um, we, 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 we give ourselves inputs, but often the kinds of inputs that create long-term problems, like, you know, caffeinated beverages that are, they're highly sugared and, you know, a whole host of of things that that get us that little energy boost in the short term, but, but of course create long-term problems with diabetes and and a whole host of other problems. So in many ways, um, I hear what you're saying as kind of the scientific justification for self-care of actually in, like taking the intentional time to meditate, to do yoga, to take an afternoon nap if necessary, which I love, um, or, yeah. or, or, or any other series of things that actually restore and that, that it's not, these aren't, th- I think culturally we think that time away from work is essentially wasted, right? It's not productive. Right. It's so it's very right. it's a very kind of knit into our American culture that like if you're not actively doing something and physically that usually looks like you're behind a screen at your computer or, or whatever, um, right? That you're that you're not actually being productive and I, I find this balance this kind of hyper productivity culture to be at odds with the science around how ironically to be the most productive because you're literally over time burning out the very capacity to stay focused over time. Is that, do you see it that way or how do you see it? Yeah, I I would say you hit it right on the nail. Uh, You know, the, the, uh, our society teaches us and, and I think that's part of, I think that, that might be the, you know, the best way to sum up why it's so hard to be raised, be an adult in America these days, 
hmm. is because we we live in an area in, in a time of enlightened information because of the internet where we can literally access anything we want at any time. And so all this information that you just talked about, about how science, how the, the scientific literature thoroughly justifies um, a, a different kind of lifestyle mm. than what we are currently living or what we've been taught, kind of forces us to take a step back and say, wait a minute, does that mean I'm supposed to relearn and reteach myself everything that I was taught as a child <laughs> growing up from like my most basic, my most basic coping strategies to the way that I think about the world? And the answer is yes. Yeah. But that is a really, really difficult thing for a lot of people to come to terms with because it's a daunting task to feel like you have to all of a sudden re-educate and retrain your entire brain um, right. because you were raised in a way that wasn't consistent with how to live the most healthy lifestyle. But ultimately, that's that's basically what we're up against is, as humans right now is we're kind of we're, we're in the information revolution where we're able to access any information we want. And then the real question that comes out of that is once we have that information about what we're doing wrong and how we can be better, what are we actually doing about it? Uh, and a lot of people are not doing anything uh, mm. because it's just, they're, they're too, as you said, you know, they're too inundated with work and trapped in this mindset where if they're not working and being productive in the traditional capitalist sense or societal sense of what productive means, mm. then they're wasting their time. Um, but ultimately there's, you know, how we can look, we don't need to look at the data, but if you, if, if you just take a quick look at the data, um, of what's coming out from, uh, health and wellness reports around the country, you know, and illness reports, you can clearly see that the way we're going about it is not working. You know, we have the mm -hmm. highest rates of substance abuse ever in our country. Mm -hmm. We have some of the highest rates of mental illness ever in our country, particularly wow. depression, which is directly correlated with burnout. 30% of medical students are meeting criteria for depression and 42% and upward of medical residents are reporting that they uh, meet criteria for depression and have suicidal ideation within the last six months. Really? And so, and, and that extends over to entrepreneurs and lots of other groups of people that are experiencing these, rapidly increasing rates of burnout. Mm. And so when you, when we see, you know, and then again, right, we have this information available to us as a scientific and a community and as a community at large. And then the real question comes, you know, what do we do about it now that we know? And so our, our take on this whole, this whole idea was, you know, let's create something that takes all of the best parts of, of treatment that work for people based on what we understand about the autonomic nervous system and, and, and balance in general and everything we've learned from Eastern medicine and everything we've learned from Western medicine and try to put, to put that into a therapy that people can take with them on the go that can help them feel more regulated in their, and more uh, able to adapt to stress in their day-to-day -day lives, mm -hmm. even if they don't necessarily have 10,000 hours to practice to become a master meditator. Right, so, right. So it's a and depressing so, number, so right? When you hear, when you, yeah. when you, I just read Altered Traits a few months ago by, by Richie Davidson and, and Daniel Goldman, and, 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 you, and you see the science behind these, you know, lifelong meditators, and it's, and it's truly impressive, right? Um, Absolutely. But it's also for the average person who has a family and a job and kind of lives not in that kind of, you know, a lot of them, you know, are, are in monasteries or, or in, uh, you know, they, they sort of have taken on that role of, of being a monk or other things that, that sort of 
right. give them that capacity to spend those thousands and thousands and thousands of hours training their minds, you know, and, and their brains. And, 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 and it is a question, a, a kind of troubling slash uh, difficult question to ask, okay, so what about the rest of us? <laughs> Right. How do we, right. we can we can we can meditate for you know I meditate uh, every morning and I meditate um, often uh, one or two additional times in the afternoon. Um, but all in all, I don't meditate more than thirty minutes a day, and, and on average, it's probably around ten minutes a day. You know? Right. Same. So I use my Headspace app, just like everybody else, you know, uh, who's doing this sort of thing. There, we've all got our our sort of meditation app and. Uh, and I find it enormously beneficial and I love it. But then I'm also s sort of in that place where I can see that I'm very much a beginner, even though I've been doing it for, you know, a couple of years now and still, and still see, very, you know, uh, I do see the changes, but I'm like, wow, I want those bigger changes. <laughs> right. Right. And when you, and that's, and that's, that was a huge, a huge uh, important point for us, you know, is how when it really comes down to the rest of us who do live these crazy, hectic lives that are all mm -hmm. over the place and we're constantly overwhelmed and bouncing from, you know, A to B to C, et cetera. How do you add something in that doesn't require much of any effort on the user's part, but still provides these benefits of being able to enhance nervous system balance like meditation or mindfulness? And then over time, also improve your ability to master and access those states because. What we're really talking about is that is states that are essential. Like you have to be, feel safe to enter these states effectively. And one of the biggest problems for people trying to enter meditative states, just like trying to enter relationships or even even you know intimate experiences, is that you have to feel safe to be able to engage completely in that experience. To be able to lean into your meditation or lean into your relationship with somebody. Um, there has to be trust in yourself, trust in the other person, trust in the experience, and there has to be some, some preliminary work that's done along the way that I think we often neglect, some of which we've talked about before, involving, for example, like the four pillars of Buddhism, you know, that help form this foundation of trust in yourself that allows you to be able to make much greater strides. But if you try to just jump right into meditation or mindfulness without having built up the foundation first, then you're going to you're going to collapse and you're going to experience a very difficult and arduous path. And so what we're what we're really trying to do with Apollo is provide this this uh, wearable benefit to people where you can get you can have the experience of safety that allows you to more fluidly adapt to these situations which 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 similarly is not just from stress to not stress it's also from stress to meditation. You know, being able to enter a meditative state is a strong state change experience. And so we do see a lot of people using Apollo who are expert meditators and naive meditators who have had dramatic experiences in terms of being able to boost their access to meditative states more quickly because awesome. they just feel safer and more able to lean into those experiences. And so, and that's the same whether it's social anxiety or whether it's you just trying to, to go to sleep, fall asleep in your own bed uh, next to your partner or by yourself. It's, it's it, all of it. It is centered around this core idea of of being able to lean into a safe situation, which allows your body to re-engage all of its normal and maintenance activities at a regular pace. Gosh, I love that. I love I love the idea that if your body if your body can't get into a safe if your if your body is sort of sending signals to your brain essentially, right, that, that it's unsafe, then it then it can't right. actually execute or perform certain critical functions, which is why we see 
you know, chronic problems. I mean, I, I'm speaking from personal experience. You know, when we were in the Middle East building, you know, we were social entrepreneurs and, uh, yeah, but had a big staff. We, you know, we raised a million dollars. We, you know, we had, it was a whole thing. We were running this, this big ship and uh, it was enormously yep. stressful. And I wasn't coping well, meaning I was coping with Pepsi and binging out on Netflix <laughs> at night, you know? Yeah, I mean, yep. like literally, like, <laughs> It, it, like when I think back, uh, you know, to 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 that that time in our lives, I, I'm still the same person. <laughs> I'm still like the, 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 the same operating equipment, and yet, when I get stressed now, the coping strategies I I, I go to look way different than than than, and, right. and so I'm trying to get the exact same effect, which is stress relief, which is sort of a sense of calm, a sense right. of control, and yet it's actually just like a micro choice, which over time becomes an entrenched habit that pushes me toward these really big outcomes. You know, I came home from Jordan um, uh, with adrenal fatigue and a whole host of problems in my body uh, because of burnout. Yeah. I was literally burned out. You know, that we, we did some testing and the doctor basically said, no, you've got, you've got like all the signs of burnout. And and so this yeah. is partly why I'm so passionate about this. So I, I don't, I don't want to go too much more into my story. I just, I feel the resonance because I want to jump right into, uh, you, you've, you've mentioned Apollo and, and what you guys are trying to do there. And I just find it so powerful. Um, tell me. Thank you. Tell me. And, and, I've, and, I, and I've just been, you're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. I, so I've actually been, so, so, so uh, Dave graciously sent me um, uh, one of their beta products. Uh, the products aren't out on the market yet, but but they're they're in a beta testing phase, and so I've been using it and just experiencing it for myself. Um, and um, one of the things that I find is a couple things, a handful of things. So this is just my kind of raw user experience. Uh, one is that it's very very easy to use. Uh, it, it looks like a watch. You know, essentially, so you strap it onto your wrist or onto your ankle, um, and and then it, it again syncs with an app. And I particularly am liking the the app choices that are about soothing or calming or relaxing. Um, and maybe that my stress just tends to run high. I don't really know, but those are the ones that tend that I tend to like the most. And um, and, and for me, again, the experience sort of feels like this low-level vibe. Again, I can't think of it. It feels like a cat purring, like on my wrist. You know, like if you've ever been next to a cat, that yeah. purring is that kind of low-level vibration that's very calming and soothing. Um, but that's sort of what it feels like. And um, and the effects have been really powerful. You know, I actually, funny, funny enough, my my daughter was having a hard time uh, sleeping last night. And uh, she was just wound up. It was my wife's birthday yesterday. And uh, so, 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 of course, you know. Happy birthday. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'll pass it on to her. Um, but, there, but there's, you know, it's birthday stuff. And she's up. She's sugared. And we had, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah. And um, can't calm down. So I grabbed the, the I, we read stories. And we're, it's, it's late at night. And it's dark. And she's doing her thing. And she's still kind of jumping around on the bed. Where I'm, we're trying to fall asleep. And uh, so I get, I get her, I get the Apollo band. I say, do you want to try this? She knows I've been using it. And uh, so I put it on her wrist and no kidding within five minutes, she's like almost snoring, you know? And I'm like, wow. wow. 
She just, it just wow, conked her out. Fantastic. And I think she was tired. She's in that wired and tired state, right? Right. Um, the the overtired just, state. The overtired state, exactly, which a lot of us get into. And, and then we mindlessly yeah. kind of wander around, pit, puttering around, doing stuff. I do this at night. Uh, and then I'm losing an hour of critical sleep that really affects my performance the next day. So getting, yeah. so dialing her down through this very, again, non-invasive, just dropping on her wrist and just soothing her, just this, these sort of gentle, oscillating kind of wave-like vibrations, conked her out, and then I can go to bed too. And then we're all happier. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, tell, tell, so, tell, so tell me tell tell me and tell the listeners a little bit more about the technology and how it actually works yeah i'd be happy to uh so and and, and just going back to to something you said earlier uh, i think the um your your diet in jordan is is i think something very important to comment on because that's probably something very similar to what my diet was like when I was in medical school. And a lot of us mm -hmm. were in those kinds of high stress situations, not only because we don't have the time to find better, better food and better lifestyle choices, but they're also often not readily available. What's really uh, essential on what you mentioned earlier is that is this idea that, you know, you had to, you know, we're talking about retraining and, and retraining your body to become comfortable with change. And I think, and, and a lot of what Apollo is based on, and the theory that Apollo is based on, and, and a lot of which is, you know, directly related to everything we're talking about, is this idea that we don't often uh, think about in our lives, which is that change itself is a skill. Adaptation yes. is a mm -hmm. skill. And the yes. reason why humans have reached the status that we've reached in the world today is because above all other skills that we have, we have the skill of adaptation. Mm. And that skill can be highly, highly trained to the point where you can adapt to any situation and roughly and come out okay. Or mm. it can be very poorly trained to the point where, uh, you know, somebody looking at you a funny way on the street that you don't even know sets you off. And, and, and that is sort of, and, and sort of understanding that practice makes perfect, you know, that, mm. that being, putting in effort into doing something that seems hard, but then over time becomes a trainable skill is what gets you over that hump that you were talking about earlier, where now you can meditate and do these things, even though you haven't been practicing them for, for, you know, as long as, as a lot of these other expert folks, you are able to get much more rapid benefit and you're able to retrain yourself so that you don't have this and follow the same impulses that you followed before. Right. And that's, and that's really a lot of what Apollo is about is it's about facilitating change responses. So, um, I think the easiest way to understand Apollo is to understand what it doesn't do first and where it came from. And so um, anybody who's been to a doctor knows that when you go into the doctor and you tell the doctor about all the things or any healthcare profession, you tell them about all the things in your life that you need help with. And they could range from a whole lot of different things like anxiety to pain to sleep, et cetera. And the doctor says to you, okay, this is easy you know, this is, these are the things that you need to change in your life to have to solve these problems. Mm. And they're saying to you, the patient, you know, change these things in your life. Use your brain from the top down to make behavior change and thought change in your life that is going to be consistent with the lifestyle that you say you want, which mm. is better sleep, better focus, better emotion regulation, et cetera. The problem with that strategy is that we've been using that strategy for a hundred years. And at best, at best, our response rates, which we call adherence rates with our patients, 
are something like 50%, unless you're treating them with something like antibiotics. When you ask people to actually make behavior change in their mm -hmm. lives to to or to desired outcome, most people really struggle to do that and to and to and to start that retraining process off and to really get things rolling. And so, noticing that from our perspective, um, as you know, in psychiatry, where most of our patients, on the whole, under 50% of our patients actually achieve uh, symptom remission sustained over time. Hmm. Um, meaning that almost everybody winds up prescribed medication for life for life, which is not a good situation. Yeah. Um, we we are trying to find alternative ways that can help in increase the, the brain and the body's ability to change behavior. And what is change directly related to? It all goes back to the autonomic nervous system. When you feel mm -hmm. safe, it's much easier to make change and to adapt mm -hmm. to change. When you feel threatened, change all of a sudden becomes scary. And so, and it becomes unfamiliar yes. and unfamiliar things by nature when you're already stressed or, or, you know, sympathetically activated are tend to be more scary. And so, um, and we know this from, from decades and decades of literature studying these responses in humans. And so ultimately, if you actually, um, so what Apollo is doing is instead of telling you as a doctor to, to change your, uh, or a healthcare professional, instead of telling you change your behavior, and then you'll feel better. We're going to say, we're going to make you feel better first using the conserved evolutionary pathways in your nervous system that convey safety, like soothing human touch, which is receptive to things like cat's purrs or bass frequency vibrations layered in very specific ways that then puts your body into a state of feeling calm and safe enough for you to be able to change states more effectively and change behavior more effectively. And so what this really is, is it's a it's a transition facilitator that does so by providing these gentle, soothing vibrations to the body that help guide you or push you more towards these different states that you're trying to enter, whether they be relaxation and sleepy states or meditative states, or whether those states are flow states or, you know, you know, calm, clear, focused states, or whether those states are wide awake and, you know, wide awake and, uh, and alert states. And mm -hmm. so by changing the, the, the frequency patterns that we deliver to your body with Apollo, we can effectively help you transition between all those states better. It almost sounds like with the, with the technology, with Apollo, you, you guys are trying to create like a foundation. It, it, it's, it's, it's really working on the foundation upon which other things are able to to be built like a skill set or a particular habit or or whatever goal the per, the person has does that feel right right uh yeah uh in a lot of ways that is correct I, I think that that we you know and i think one of the common metaphors that we often use in our society is this idea of trickle down mm. where we think about things going from the top to the bottom and i think one of the interesting parts of everything we're talking about is that how that is not that does not really apply because if you think from top to bottom, we think that the brain is in control all the time and that it's up to us and it's our responsibility to control our brain and control our thoughts and control our bodies and to, you know, m m consciously change, which ideally you, we would be able to do that without, without issue. But um, ultimately, the, it's actually more of a bottom up, trickle up kind mm -hmm. of experience where where the nervous system at the core, which uh, the autonomic nervous system, which is at the core of the, uh, as you said, the foundation of, of all of all of these system functions and all of the way the body works and all of the way that our 
cardiovascular and respiratory systems and our nervous systems and immune systems and digestive systems are all in, in, interacting with one another, that by hitting that system, that is how we are able to induce the responses that we get. And, and within sometimes, you know, as you said, five minutes for your daughter, we see response between two to five minutes on a regular basis. And that's what we've shown in our clinical trials and in the mm -hmm. lab at the university of Pittsburgh. Um, and so by changing, by providing this kind of bottom up input, it, 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 as you said, it, it hits the foundation of where all of these feelings and these symptoms and the anxiety or whatever it is, the stress that we, we call stress is coming from, and then allows you to be able to self-regulate better. And so it's really, in a lot of ways, a, a very powerful self-empowerment uh, self tool because it trains your body to be more balanced over time, not just in the moment. And the more you use it, similar to meditation and mindfulness, the better the effects get over time. Right. Right. Yep. And that's exactly what the mindfulness research shows is the more it's cumulative. Right. You know, my, my, um, you're reminding me of so much. It's funny, the more you read, the more that it feels like there are kind of root causes a lot of a lot of our ills. In fact, I just wrote a, wrote a little bit about this in my, uh, this past week. Um, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Besser van der Kolk's work on body, the body keeps the score, which, you know, the, the sort of the, the way mm -hmm. hold, hold trauma, which is basically sort of like the body believing that it's always like chronically in danger. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of, um, uh, sort of Lisa Feldman Barrett's, uh, interpretation of how emotion works, where, you know, emotion is really just your brain's interpretation or label on an internal state, right? What they call interoception, perception, exactly. interior. So, yep. so an emotion, and people don't, emotions are so, um, can be so mysterious to us, where they come from, why we have them, why we have such strong ones, et cetera. But, but really, you know, emotion is sort of an interpretation of the, in, uh, of your bodily state. It's your brain's understanding of what's going on inside the entire organism. And so when you affect that organism at that deep level of, of calming, soothing, like really shifting it into that safe state of your body believing, no, 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 we're good. We're good. We can do we right. can rest and digest. We can do, we can activate parasympathetic and start doing some of these restorative processes in the body. Then suddenly things like anxiety, angry outbursts, irritability, um, you know, you know, the, these things that are actually symptoms. Impulsivity. Habit. Impulsivity. Yes. Uh, the, 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 this is what we mean by emotion control or emotion regulation is that we got, we, when we work from the bottom up, we work with the kind of source or the root of where emotions come from. Right. And that's exactly why, and you know, uh, massage makes us feel good. Gentle, soothing mm -hmm. touch makes us feel good. It's exactly why when you're having a bad day and somebody you like comes up to you and holds your hand or gives you a hug, you feel better instantaneously. You don't, you may not, you may not feel like the problem's solved, but you just feel better. And you feel better because you have a significant safety input coming in that's overwhelming all of the fear responses that you have coming down. Mm -hmm. And so... It, it's a dynamic balance between these two systems to constantly regulate homeostasis in the body, which is a key word, right? Homeostasis is our mm -hmm. ability to come back to resting quickly and to maintain a resting state in any environment. And what's more interest, what's even more important than homeostasis is another term that's starting to become popular called homeostatic capacity, which is what we work on with Apollo 
and what mindfulness and meditation work on, which is this idea that the more you train your nervous system to be balanced, the more you practice, the more perfectly balanced your nervous system will get. So the more that you train your body to be uh, in a balanced state in times where you might otherwise be stressed, which is really something interesting about Apollo, right? It's very hard to meditate if you are in Walmart and you have PTSD and you get triggered in line as you're checking out, yeah. it's easier just to leave, right? And it's easier right. just to not go back. But if you have something on you that you're wearing, where as soon as you start to get worried or stressed out, or even better, if the technology that like what we're working on can actually detect when you start to get stressed out based on your phone usage, your biometrics, your mobile data, et cetera, then what we can do is we can actually turn on the Apollo frequencies in advance, which helps you reach a more centered place in your nervous system that says, wait, maybe I'm not actually threatened right now. And you actually in real time reappraise the situation and come to a different conclusion that doesn't involve you fighting or, fly or flying. And when you have shown yourself that you can do that, just like grabbing, um, just like grabbing a healthy snack rather than the Pepsi, right? You start to change your neurobiology and your neurochemistry and your synaptic connections to favor this other more constructive, positive coping strategy rather than the one you were, you were engaging in for however long before. Right. It's fascinating. The reappraisal, the idea of reappraisal, I'm always thinking of cognitive reappraisal, right? And reframing, which in positive psychology, right. a lot of, you know, discussion in, 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 in the, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is, is largely based around this. Um, I, I'm thinking of what you're saying as reappraisal from an embodied, like an embodied reappraisal, or that it's like it's like you're signaling from the bottom up a reappraisal, which then of course gets the kind of top-down match from the cognitive interpretation of that more calm state. Does that is that how you close. see? It? I don't I don't know if I'm see, I'm certain. Yeah, very very. No, no, it was very close. The only thing yeah. I would change is that what we're doing is we're providing the the user of of the of the technology of the Apollo yeah. technology with and with a recognizable opportunity to reappraise. So mm. prior, you may not have known that you had another choice because no other choice in your mind has ever worked for you. Yeah. In your mind, if you've been doing the same thing for your entire life or for 10 years or even for five months in response to a certain kind of stress, there may not be another way that you see clearly in that moment anymore because sure. your initial response is already completely conditioned, right? This yeah. goes back to Candelian learning um, that dates back millions and millions of years, you know, animals long before humans were ever on the earth, yeah. where we know that if you apply a, 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 a noxious or threatening stimulus to an animal, it will retract and it will learn to become more sensitive to threat. Yeah. Uh, if you provide a neutral stimulus over time, it becomes con uh, can become conditioned or ignored uh, and habit what we call habituation or positive stimuli can also be trained in the same way. It's similar to, to the Pavlovian dog experiment. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so it's a lot of reconsolidation, memory reconsolidation, or we call fear reconsolidation, which I'm, I'm also kind of using interchangeably with reappraisal is, something that can only happen again when you are already in a position safe enough to be able to recognize the opportunity for it the opportunities for it are yeah. always there you yeah. always have more than one choice 
It's just, do you perceive yourself as only having one choice or do you perceive yourself as having other alternatives? And so as soon as you start perceiving that there are other alternatives, you open up an avenue for you to make and follow, make, make other choices and follow those other alternatives. But in, in the time when you're already in, you know, wrapped up, it's really, really hard to do that. And so Apollo is providing the opportunity to, which bring, by bringing you back to your body and making you present, and making you feel a little safer in this situation, it provides an opportunity for you to reappraise so that you can understand you have the ability to make a different decision in that situation. And then that ultimately facilitates the cognitive retraining over time. I love it. Gosh, it's so cool. It is so cool. I, I'm reading Daniel Siegel's book, Aware, right now, uh, his latest. And uh, he, he, it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating read. It's a heavy read. It's a big read. Uh, and he goes into some pretty, pretty. Uh, he dives into to some pretty intense stuff that, that again, you got to be up for for the read if you're going to dive into it. But, sure. but uh, what what's interesting as he describes the 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 kind of sea of um, of possible potentialities, right? Of of kind of when you're when you're saying, I hear what you're saying, a choice. Like in a moment, if if something triggers me or somebody cuts me off in traffic or somebody does something rude to me in line at a grocery store, whatever it is. Right. That that depending on that kind of baseline, you know, but depending on kind of how intense my reaction is, and again, usually that's an it can be a negative reaction. This is what we usually struggle with. <laughs> uh, right. There's, there's more or less possibility of me acting in a particular way. So if, if my reaction is sort of mellow, it might be slightly irritated, but still very much in the sea of choice with these different ways of different possible reactions. I can still be, I can still feel a little bit, a twinge of kind of irritation when somebody does something. Right. But then also give them the benefit of the doubt. Right. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. And you're allowed oh, to no, feel irritation. Absolutely... Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. And you're allowed to feel those things, right? Sure. The emotions themselves, and I think going back to what you were saying earlier, the emotions themselves are, are real, right? Feelings yeah. are real, and we should acknowledge them, and we should yeah. give them the respect that they deserve. At the same time, in addition to what you were saying earlier about how the emotion that we feel often gets labeled and sometimes, or maybe more often than not, mislabeled, uh, which leads to a misinterpretation of the feeling or the experience. I think what's more important about that is that the label of the emotion often is associated with a prejudgment. And mm. so when, you, when, you, when we experience emotion on the whole, instead of just feeling the way we feel and understanding why we feel that way or asking ourselves, why do I feel this way and starting to explore it, ultimately we oftentimes first response is judge ourselves for feeling that way. We judge ourselves for feeling sad or feeling upset or angry. Mm -hmm. And that brings on additional emotions of shame and guilt and embarrassment. Yeah. And yeah. when yeah. those feelings start to come into play, those feelings should be in a, in a non-prejudged situation signals to us that says, hey, maybe this isn't the best path of thought. But if that's the way that we've been taught to experience and cope with stress and emotions that we are told are not good to feel. Mm. And I would argue, and I would argue that this is a big, a big issue in the field right now. And I think one of the best, and I've probably heard this before, but um, one of the best movies about it is that animated movie called, uh, uh, do you remember the, uh, escaping me the Pixar um, Inside animated Out? movie about emotions? 
Inside yeah. Out, yeah. Inside Out? That yeah, movie, yeah. That movie, yeah, that movie, that movie does an amazing job because it shows how all of the emotions dynamically interact together and that right. none of them are bad. They're mm. just there. Mm. And so you're allowed to feel them without feeling bad for feeling. Once wow. you get to the point where, you're, where you allow yourself to feel without judging yourself for feeling, then that allows you to accurately interpret the emotions that you're experiencing and make the better decisions based on those signals that you're getting from your body. But if you are, are, are in a fearful state or, or you've been in a fearful state for a very long time, you're not going to be as likely to be able to approach those experiences coming in in a non-judgmental way. And so we wind up more effect, more, more, more likely to label, more likely to judge, more likely to judge not only our feelings, but also ourselves, which all is directly contradictory to our ability to change. And so all it's about, so it's really, you know, when we talk about like relearning, relearning what it means to be human, you know, it's really about relearning everything down to the core of the way that we use words, as you said earlier, to describe our feelings and, and how, we look at ourselves um, and being, because being able to look at yourself in a non-judgmental way and look at your experience and your signals and your, from your body in a non-judgmental way is ultimately what is going to facilitate your, your skill of listening to your body and, and being better and healthier because you're bringing more balance and regulation into the, into the situation. You're removing the resistance, the judgment that creates, ultimately long-term creates an enormous amount of suffering. Wow. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, Dave. I I I was sort of I I'm in a moment right now where I'm trying to allow myself to feel negative emotions. Uh, and I know that sounds sort of like a, a bizarre thing to have to work on, but but I was really taught in, in much to you know we are all raised in the way we're raised, but, 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 but I was raised in, uh, uh, my, my dad in particular was very optimistic. And, um, and in many ways I, I credit that richness of optimism with, with a lot of who I am today, you know, so there's a lot of positive. Right. Uh, the, the, the flip side of it, which I only kind of slowly coming to terms with is that I did kind of feel like it wasn't really okay to feel Negative emotions, like thinking of that inside out, right? right? If fear or anger, especially anger um, or, or, or sadness or disgust or, you know, whatever it was, um, that, that what I would do with those emotions because they became socially unacceptable to express, even if it was right. done not in a, in, a, in a harmful way to others, if it was just done in a need to kind of get them out of my body and feel seen or heard, or, or, or yeah. as an expression of hurt, right? We often get angry when we feel hurt. It's actually hurt, that, which is what right. happened, but we express it as aggression or anger, right? Um, I, I, uh, what I would end up doing is just kind of stuffing those negative emotions and just bottling them, you know, and, and, and not, you know, not knowing what to do with them, just, not, just knowing that right. like, unless I had a smile on my face, it was sort of like, well, I just needed to find a way to deal with the negative emotions. So it, it, in many ways, one of my coping strategies, my meta patterns that I find is that I'll distance, right? I'll, I'll go off on my own. I'll read, I'll, right. I'll do something that's, that's not, uh, which I don't think is necessarily inherently bad, uh, unless I'm not dealing with, unless it's interpersonal and I'm not um, engaging in the negative emotion 
to, right. in order to process through it constructively. And it's, it is fascinating how deep that runs in our collective psychology, that negative emotions are bad. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think one of, the, one of the major areas of focus that we're, we've been exploring and that I think is really critical to cognitive retraining and, this, and sort of the, you know, the quintessential ideas behind things like CBT and DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy and mm-hmm. interpersonal, uh, you know, interfamily uh, systems therapy and all these other different therapies that really work well for people when they engage is the engagement, right? You have to be engaged in treatment, whether, whether that's with just you and yourself or whether it's you and your therapist or you and your coach or whatever it is, you have to be bought in to the experience of change and, mm. and to be able. And, and so when, when, and that's where the four pillars really come in, you know, because it's one thing to try to just start doing all of these things amidst all of the other stuff that we have going on in our lives without any preparation. And we'll say, Oh, you know, well, I tried and I failed, but you know, I put in a good effort, but even if you did, you probably weren't doing it right because you weren't taking that. Most people at least don't take the time to really work on the foundation yeah. of what all of this stuff is built on. And the foundation of all of this stuff has to be built on not insecurity, but a trust in oneself. And the trust mm-hmm. in oneself comes from practicing things, skills, skills like gratitude, forgiveness, compassion, and self-love. Mm-hmm. which are the four pillars of the foundation of almost every single modern religion known to man. Um, and these, these are so consistent across religions because these four skill sets, if you practice them as simply as waking up every morning and before you go to bed saying, you know, I am grateful for the fact that I made it here today mm-hmm. and that I get to see and live another day. And I'm grateful for the fact that I did everything that I did to get myself here, right? So you're expressing self-gratitude, forgiveness for the things that you did wrong that might have been mistakes that you felt you made along the way, you still made it here. You still have an enormous amount to be grateful for. So you're going to learn from your mistakes and it's okay to make them because making mistakes is part of the path, right? And then compassion for all the mistakes you will make in the future and for others and understanding that, you know, you're not going to be perfect the first time. Practice take makes perfect. And you've been practicing things a different way for however many years. It's going to take a good amount of time for you to, trans, you know, to, to retrain yourself. So, so you know, go into it with a sense of not expecting everything from the beginning. And then that all leads into self-love, which is this idea of not – not trying to make yourself better because you hate yourself and you don't think you're good enough, but trying to make yourself the best person that you can be because you want to grow as a person and be fulfilled and in touch with yourself and trust yourself. And all of that forms that foundation of, of, of self-trust. And once you have you know, built your foundation and strengthened your foundation of self-trust, then you can start to really add on all these other things mm. like, um, you know, these, these health practices and get a much more dramatic benefit. You know, I think you can still get yeah. benefit from doing them without the foundation, but the benefits after you've built a foundation will last for a much longer time because they have something to sit on. And that will, that will stick with you over time and allow you to more effectively, you know, pers- you know move forward with other sort of cognitive retraining activities. Um, but all of that is sort of, you know, so fundamental to you know, all of this self-healing work that we do. And ultimately, um, you know, when we allow ourselves to trust ourselves, that is when we can truly allow ourselves to feel and to listen to ourselves without labeling and without judgment. 
And so um, when you can get, when we get to that point, and this is something of course takes practice. So, you know, be nice to yourself. It's going to, it's going to take some time, but as you practice just thinking about yourself and thinking about these things in different ways, ultimately what that will allow you to do is something incredibly powerful that we found separates people who are mentally ill from people who are superstars. And one of the major things that they do that's different, people who are, who are the superstars who might have been equally or more traumatized than the folks who succumb to mental or physical illness, is that these people channel their negative emotions, right? Mm-hmm. They don't just let anger take over and, and yell at everybody or, or become violent or aggressive. They understand that they have a certain emotion and maybe they have it a lot and maybe they don't enjoy the way they feel, but they have to do something about it and they'd rather do something constructive and productive for them that's rewarding rather than doing something destructive that's impulsive. And so instead of using drugs or instead of, you know, doing any number of other non-constructive activities, people will channel their anger into things like entrepreneurship and business, right? They'll channel their their anger into personal development and they, and they will use that energy to help move them forward to become better and faster and stronger and more resilient because really all of these names that we give to emotions are just names for different kinds of energy. The question is, what do you do with that energy? Remember, like, just like we were talking about when we first started this conversation, once you have the information and understand what is true and what is not true and what you can do with the information you have, what do you actually then decide to do? Yep. Yeah. I love it. I love the idea of getting mad and then going for a run as way to here because that's what your body actually is asking you to do it's like a constructive it's very like matched with our like biological origin of the of the upset um yeah and yeah and you just and that and that energy just comes out comes right out through your body and then serves to clear your mind which is why running is such a fantastic activity or any kind of exercise for that matter I'm also reminded as you're talking of Kristen Neff's research on self-compassion um and how hard it is for people to wrap their head around. It's talking about retraining our kind of whole experience of humanity, of our, of our, of our kind of lives, right, and what it means to be human. It's so hard to, to, to really start walking into, for some reason, uh, for a lot of us, it's really hard to walk into that space of self-care and self-compassion and self-kindness, right, to, to treat ourselves the way we would treat a good friend if they were struggling. Right. Or to treat ourselves the right. way we would talk to a small child, you know, who is struggling with something. To talk to our, our own self-talk, to reflect that kind of kind, gentle, encouraging, um, is, is in many ways been shown empirically to, to be one of these root causes, as you're describing, as being a necessary ingredient for change. And without it, we get stuck. We, 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 don't, we, don't, we don't progress. Right. And so in some cases, we actually regress, yeah. uh, which is really, un- you know, the unfortunate situation. And they, but I think, you know, what you, what you brought up is really important. I, I think that that exact, that exact um, thing you just mentioned about, your, you know, your being your own best friend. I use that with my patients almost first thing when we meet, uh, when we come into the office and they're, they're talking about a, a problem they've had that, that week or the week before or whatever. And they talk about how they're judging themselves. Mm. for their reaction and mm. for what happened and, and blaming themselves for the problem, blaming other people. And then we, you know, and then I ask them after they tell me the whole thing, I say, now tell me how you, now, now tell me how you would react to this if it was your best friend telling you all of these things that you just told me. 
Yeah. Right. And all of a sudden, a little light bulb goes off in their heads, and they're like, "Wow, I really treat myself terribly." <laughs> yeah. And and, and it, even it's if a real they don't surprise say for it, people. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Wow, because I'm really taught, to myself. <laughs> right. And, and part of that is again going back to a deep, a deep and in, deeply indoctrinated um, uh, principle in our minds, which is that to be afraid of failure right? To be afraid of making mistakes. Why should we be afraid of something that's inevitable? It's like being afraid of death. You know, nobody's signing, you know, we're not, we're not necessarily saying we want to sign up, sign on the line and, and, and seal the date for our demise or for our, you know, future failure, but it's going in, but it's living in the present enough to be able to understand that these things are going to happen and you're not going to necessarily do anything to try to make it more likely. You're probably going to do whatever you can to make it less likely that it's going to happen in soon or in the way that you don't want it to, but you're still accepting that it is inevitable that you will at some point have these experiences. And so if you can, if we can teach people that from a very young age, um, that's really the best way to do it is, you know, really hit kids where they're, when they're young and learning about what, what it means to make Mm -hmm. mistakes and what it means to fail. And instead show them that instead of looking at it as shameful and guilty, mm. you can equally have an opportunity to see these things as an opportunity for growth. Mm. And so challenge is an opportunity for growth, right? Nietzsche said, what does not kill us makes us stronger. Mm. And that's not about physical injury. That's about us overcoming challenge in our lives that allows us to develop as, a, as people and become more enriched human beings. If we didn't have challenge, we would be nothing because we would never have the drive to learn anything. Everything would be handed to us. But challenge is what makes us resilient. Overcoming challenge and challenging ourselves to continuously grow and get better is what the drive to make us continuously stronger, better individuals and better organisms um, and better to ourselves and better to others because it facilitates a constant pattern of growth rather than stagnation. And so that's, that's another thing that's at the core of, of shifting our, our, our concepts on this is really just understanding, you know, that l- failure is not something to be afraid of. It's something that's there that you might as well get used to it right now. And then when you f- have the foresight to see that, then do whatever you can to plan ahead to avoid it. Yeah. But if you ignore it, it's going to catch up with you and you're going to have a much more unpleasant experience. Wow. Dave, this was so, gosh, we, uh, this was so, <laughs> so helpful. I, I, I mean, literally, like, if, if, for those who are listening, the wisdom that's coming out of Dave's mouth right now, if you can apply this <laughs> in your life, uh, it, 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 it's really getting, to, in my mind, to root causes of a lot of our suffering and pain. And, and on the flip side, a lot of our flourishing and happiness. Um, so Dave, I just want to, uh, I want to make sure our our listeners can find you. Where do they, where do they look, uh, to find you, follow you, uh, to find Apollo neuroscience, et cetera. Yeah. Thanks, James. Um, yeah, this has been a really great, great conversation. I really appreciate you having me and thank you for your kind words. Um, I want to let everybody know that first off, almost all the things that I've been talking about here with James can be found in ancient uh, scriptures that are probably well documented online about Buddhist, ancient Buddhist and Hindu culture, because, you know, they really have spent an enormous amount of time focusing on understand tribal culture as well, but focusing on the understanding of, of these four pillars and, and the foundations of, of thought that 
um, seem to elude a lot of us in, in Western health. Um, but uh, a lot of the stuff is available. And, and I think when you really do go back and look at the old, the, or, the original sources, the origins, you can see how truly ingrained in humans these kinds of things really are. They're not something that we're just making up now uh, mm -hmm. after learning about the science. We're actually now finding that the science explains uh, principles that we've understood as humans for thousands and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of uh, if anybody who anybody who wants to find me or reach out to me, um, you can go to apolloneuro.com, um, and from apolloneuro.com you can access uh, you can access information about our technology, and you can sign up to beta test, and soon you'll be able to see where uh, where we're uh, speaking at different conferences around the world. Uh, we'll be at Rio 2C in uh, Brazil in the end of nice. April, and then uh, at Summit in Tulum in May. Nice. Uh, and then there's a few others coming up. And um, and then you can also find me at Twitter if you want to reach out to me directly, uh, at Dave Rabin. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, so if anybody's interested in, in, in following their work, ApolloNeuro.com. Uh, reach out to Dave, follow him on Twitter. Uh, and, and Dave, also, when when can people expect, I know the product isn't available, you can't quite purchase, uh, purchase it yet, but when do you sort of hope for that to be available for people? Uh, so the, the Apollo technology will be available for pre-sale in the spring, uh, May or June, and the um, and the technology itself will be commercially released and available uh, in uh, the fall of 2019. So pretty soon. So, so awesome. you know, so sign up on our website and if you're interested, and we'll be happy to share updates with you and let you know uh, how things are moving as we move closer and closer towards production. Love it. Love it. Dave, thank you again so much for being on the show. It's been such a pleasure. This was such a fun conversation. Yeah, this was really great. Thank you so much for having me. I really yeah, appreciate it. Absolutely.